you have your Bibles this morning, I'm going to ask you to please turn with me to Malachi chapter 4. We are closing out Malachi today, and uh, Lord willing, uh, we'll be starting in on Romans next week. So please be praying for me as I prepare for that. But we have some work to do here in Malachi. And this is, this is an amazing portion of Scripture. I mean, all of Scripture is amazing, right? It's all God breathed. But boy, this, this section here just contains so much. It just contains really the essence of the, of the Christian story. It just does. Everything's here um, encapsulized in, in these verses to be sure. It is the last word before the 400 years of silence, but even here there's the promise that that silence is going to be broken, and it will be broken, right? As John the Baptist comes and announces, makes a way for the Savior, Jesus Christ. But this section just encompasses so much. And again, things pertaining to life and death. Um, it encompasses the, the, the aspects of the two comings of, of, of Christ, the advent of Christ, his first coming, and also the consummation and judgment. It speaks to two kinds of people, and there are only two kinds of people, beloved. There are two kinds. There are sinners, and we are born sinners, and then there are sinners who are saved by grace. They place their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the distinction that the Scripture makes. It talks about two eternal destinies. There's no in-between. There's no third way. There's no other place. It's heaven or hell. It talks about justice and grace. Man, it talks about law and gospel. There's one way of salvation. It's all here in this section. Now, we preached on a portion last week. We're mainly going to focus on... Um, now we're going to focus on the whole thing pretty much. So um, let's read the passage. This is... Malachi chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. He says, For behold, the day of the Lord is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall be set ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you and praise you for your holy word, Lord God. We thank you for how glorious it is, It is, Lord, um, the, the consent of all the parts, the majesty that's contained in your word, the unfolding of redemptive history, Lord, over all those years, the many different authors, Lord, how that story is true, and we see it, Lord God, perfectly unfolding to according to your degree, decree and your holiness. So, Lord, we ask that you bless this time, this message. I pray that you would be with each and every one of us this morning, that we would be engaged by your Spirit in your word, Lord. Please help us to be edified, help us to be challenged, Lord, where we need to be comforted, Lord, by your grace and by your mercy. Please be with me to bring forth your message with precision, with boldness, Lord God, and uh, in a way that honors and glorifies you and is helpful to us. And I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. 
Okay, so Malachi is calling back a wayward people. That's what he's doing. He's calling them back. He's making clear that every single person is headed to one of two places, one of two destinies. And, and you see in verse 1 of this chapter, the first couple of verses are very, very forthright. They're very descriptive, aren't they? They're pretty scary in some ways, and, and it's final and irreversible. He says, the day's coming like a burning oven. The evildoers are going to be turned to stubble. That, that day is coming. So set, set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. I will leave them nor root nor stubble. That is final and irreversible on that day. That's that final judgment, right? It's final and irreversible. And that's the frightening reality for those. It just is. It just is. It's a frightening reality for those who do not, who will not, who refuse, who reject Christ, who refuse to repent and believe on him. Be sure. that you'll stand before him. He goes on to say, this is for the arrogant. And when we think about arrogant, that word also is uh, translated proud. All of us know some people that are proud in the worst sense of that word. You know, we know those kinds of people. They're just arrogant, aren't they? They're smug. They're self-confident. They're self-sufficient. They're condescending towards others. They're degrading. We know those kinds of people, right? Always right. They're never going to admit when they're wrong. They're too proud to do that. So I'm always right. So yeah, it's talking about that for sure because that fits into the category. But biblically, you need to understand this idea of arrogance and proud because it's expanded and basically includes Well, just about all of us, it really does. The proud and the arrogant towards God. Who are they? Who are the proud and arrogant towards God? Just those proud people that never think, you know, they're, they're, they could be wrong in any way? No. The proud and arrogant towards God are those who see no real need for God in their lives. There's no consideration towards him in their thinking. People don't even take a second thought about God in their lives. Who's God? I'm just going to get up and, and live my life the way I live my life, the way I do things, the way I've always done things. They barely, barely acknowledge his existence. See, that's that, like when you're talking about God who created you, who created all things, whom we will answer to one day, and you're just kind of living your life, going along your merry way without acknowledging him. Don't you think that's proud? And don't you think that's arrogant? To not, to not give thanks to God. They're thankless towards God. What do I have God thanks for? What do I need him for? What, what, what? I'm making my own way. They're doing their thing. They're doing it their own way. See, that encompasses a lot of nice people. So it's not just those kind of proud people. It encompasses just about every single one of us. Also, another way of being proud, prideful, towards God is believing that you could earn God's favor. Like, who do we think we are that we can come down and say, look, God, I'm a pretty decent person. I try my best. I do the best that I can. I work hard. I'm nice to these people. I don't lie. I don't cheat. I don't steal. steal. At least not all the time. Right? I try to be good. I try to do my best. See that? See that? That's, that's, that's pride. That's arrogant. If you're a Christian, you know better. You know in your heart that we are humbled before the Lord God. We, can't, we know who we are and what we are exactly. And we could talk about this all day long and we could look at different passages. I'm just going to point out to uh, Proverbs 16.5. tells us this. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. 2 Corinthians 10.17 and 18. Let, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, don't boast in yourself. Look at me, God. Here's what I'm doing. Here's what I got for you. No, no, no. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one 
whom the Lord commands. And again, we can go on and on with passages, but I just wanted to point that out to you. He also talks here about evildoers. The day is coming with the arrogant and the evildoers. Not just the obvious ones who are the evildoers, the murderers, the rapists, those. Yeah, we, there's a category for that in the, in, in the evil ones. But you have to remember, even the ones who were the religious leaders, who, who were leading the people who knew their Bibles, who understood much of what the Bible teaches. The religious leaders of Jesus' day. What did Jesus say about them? John 8, 44. He says this. You're of your father, the devil. That's who you're the, that's who you are. You think that you're leading us because you have the garb on, because you know this, but you're not really obeying God from your heart. Who do you, you're of your father, the devil. See, that's evil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is the liar and the father of lives. You see that? So, so that evil idea of evil encompasses so many more than we think. These are the ones who reject his rule, who reject his reign, who reject his salvation, who show that despite what they think, they are deserving of his wrath. That's why this passage and these, these two verses are so it's, it's a very scary description, isn't it? It's very descriptive. The day is coming like a burning oven. That's judgment. That's, that's language of, of, of everlasting judgment. When all the arrogant and all the evil evildoers will be stubble, the day is coming that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. So it will leave them neither root nor branch. Again, that's it. There's nothing left. They're gone. There's nothing there to build on. It's scary description. And it's really a scary description of, of not just the last judgment, but of hell. That where unbelievers go apart from the Lord. Now that's a really tough subject for so many people to talk about. People get uncomfortable with that. Even in church. Are you uncomfortable right now? Try not to be, because it's the truth. But it is. It's a subject that most people avoid. They avoid the subject of hell. Most people don't talk about it. Or when they do, and I'm not talking about believers, I'm talking about unbelievers right now. You know, they'll joke about it, right? You have friends that'll joke about it. How about the far side? I, I do like the far side, I have to admit. And, but there's a lot of flippant jokes, you know, or, or cartoons about, about hell and the nature of hell. It's kind of makes you laugh in some ways. Um, there, there are people that joke about, hey man, I'm going to go to hell and I'm going to be there with all my friends and we're going to party and it's going to be cool down there. No, 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 no. So, but that's what we try to do because we don't want to think about the reality of it, do we? Still others, are simply appalled at the idea. I mean, they're deeply offended when you talk to them about hell in this place where people who do not repent, who do not believe, go to and face judgment and wrath. They get mad at that. They, that angers them, doesn't it? Like, oh, what, are you kidding me? And how could God do that to somebody forever? And how, who are you to, to say that, that, you know, that's just a myth that's made up to keep people in line. That's a big deal with so many people. It's kind of the myth of hell to scare people so they don't do, you know, kind of threatening them in that way. And that's just outside the church. But even within the church, the doctrine's not a popular one. Let's face it. How many sermons on hell have you heard recently? Especially if you're trying to grow a church. You're not going to win friends and influence people by preaching on hell. Yeah, welcome to church. Guess what? It's nice to see you here. You're going to hell apart from Christ. How many churches will preach that message? Welcome. The day of the Lord is coming, burning like an oven. All the arrogant evildoers will be stubble, burning ablaze. 
No, see, we want to emphasize the love, the grace, the mercy, heaven. And yes, we do. We absolutely want to emphasize that for sure. But we can't forget about God's justice, his indignation, his wrath, and hell. We can't do that. Yes, he is slow to anger. He's abounding in love and compassion. He's also holy and righteous and just. And he will not let sin go unpunished because of his nature. Do you know there's a growing number of annihilationists in the church? Do you know what annihilationism is? Poof, you're gone when you die. Either you go to heaven, if you trust in the Lord, that's good. But if you die, there's really no hell. You just cease to exist. Just like before you were born. Do you remember before you were born? No. That's kind of what it'll be. Like, that's annihilationism. You're just wiped out of existence. Now, that's growing in popularity, even in some evangelical circles and evangelical churches. You need to know this and understand this because this doctrine of hell is a difficult one to grapple with, to deal with. And it is. It's hard. It's uncomfortable in so many ways. So wouldn't that be nice? You know, you miss out on your reward. You don't go to heaven and you're not in the new heavens and new earth. But at least I'm not in hell. Right? So what's, what's the incentive? So, so you can live your life the way you want to in disobedience to God, do the things you want to do without real fear of any kind of punishment or judgment. See, that's annihilationism and that's coming along. More and more people are trending towards universalism. Do you know what that is? Universalism. Again, even in the evangelical church, that eventually, eventually everybody will end up in heaven. See, this softens the blow. It does. It makes it, you know, if it were true, that'd be, that'd be nice, you know, that eventually everybody ends up in heaven. Now you are going to have a season in hell, for sure, if you're not trusting in Christ at that time. But after you do your time, it's almost like a prison but with no life sentence, you know, some, eventually, depending on the, your sins and the crimes you've committed or whatever, you're there, but eventually you will be in heaven. You will be released to the Lord. Growing up Roman Catholic, what was your goal? Purgatory, you could say it, because you knew you weren't going to get to heaven. You had to be a saint, right, in that way, in that theology. So the goal was always purgatory. I want to try to avoid the mortal sins, you know, the big stuff, the bad stuff. The venial sins we could play around with because then we could work those off. These These are alternatives to what the Bible actually teaches. The inescapable fact, and here's the reality. The Bible is clear on this. You know, Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven or than anybody else in Scripture. And very descriptive at times. But even in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, and you need to know this and understand this. This is why the stakes are so high. This is why we say almost week after week, this, we are serious. We're not playing a game here as Christians. We're here because it is life and death. It is eternity. It is heaven and hell, or hell. It says this, speaking of those who do not trust in Christ, who do not believe, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Matthew 10.28, Jesus says this, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And then Matthew 25.30 says this, speaking of the worthless servants, the unbelievers, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Revelation 21, 8. But as for those, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, 
and all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is tough stuff, isn't it? In Matthew 13, at the end of the parable of the weeds, as Jesus is explaining this, he says this, beginning in verse 38. The field is the world, and the good seed are the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy sowed, sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather out his kingdom, gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, this is Jesus speaking of that. So, so Malachi, his answer to this, verse 1 and 2, that correspond to what we've just been talking about, says, look, you need to trust in the Son of Righteousness. And there's our hope in Jesus Christ. We talked all about that last week. We have our justification, our sanctification, our glorification in Christ. But this is why we need to take this so seriously. This is why the gospel is the only hope. This is why we're desperate to bring out that message. This is why you can't be complacent in your life, man, as as the Lord gives us opportunity, both in your life, growing in Christ, making sure that you are in him, living for him, growing in him, and then going out and telling others, making disciples, taking the opportunities that he gives you to tell others about Christ, because this is absolutely for real. This is the reality. John 3.36 says this, look at this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Amen, praise God. If you believe in Christ, eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But what? The wrath of God remains on him. What does that presuppose? You know this. We talk about this all the time. You are already under the wrath of God. It's not that we're good and, you know, we kind of make our way. We are already under his wrath. Apart from Christ, we remain under the wrath of God. John 5, 24 says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. There's the good news. Isn't that amazing news? Praise God. But the other side, the other side, he who does not come, he does not come into judgment. I'm sorry, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Again, passing from death to life, death presupposes that that's we're, we're under that sentence and we're delivered from that. So Malachi goes on. So do you see this? Two people, sinners, sinners who are saved by grace, two, two destinations, heaven or hell. There's no, there's no middle ground. There's no way around it. Only through Christ are we saved and redeemed. Malachi shows the way. He does. He gives us hope, hope for forgiveness and life for all those who would believe. That's a beautiful message of the gospel. That's the hope. And really it's contained in verses four to six. Remember the law of my servant Moses, statutes, rules, and commands, that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of his fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So now again, as it encompasses everything about our salvation, right here, in essence, what he's talking about is the law and the gospel. That's what he's talking about here. So he says, remember my law. Remember my servant Moses. Moses represents the law of God. God gave him the law for, for his people. Remember. He says, look back. Be reminded of that. You have forgotten that, people. Remember 
the law. And as you look back, what is it you see? Why do you look back in the first place? Because the law teaches us about God. It reflects the, the commandments. The law of God reflects his holy character. That's what it does. It's a reflection of who he is and it contains his standards and his statutes that we are to honor and live by. Do you understand that? That's what the law contains for us. And, and you've heard this before from this pulpit and from others that there are really three uses of the law of God. So when we think back to Moses, we think about the law, what do we think of? What's the primary use? Why was the law given to us in the first place, given to the children of Israel, given to us in the first place. Was it to say, here's the law, here are the commandments, try to keep them, do your best, and you know, if you make it, then you live, then you got it, and, and you can come in. Right? Here's the standard for you. All you have to do is live up to that. Is that why God gave them? Is that primary? No. We know from the New Testament, the primary use of the commandments, why God gave the law in the first place. Number one is to show you that you can't keep it, to show you that you're not good enough, to show you that you're not righteous or holy enough, and point to Christ who is and who was and who did keep it for us. Amen? So, yes, man. So Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 says this. Therefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. That's that's the fullness of the law. That's the primary use. That's the biggest thing about the law of God. To show his holiness and our sinfulness in light of his holiness, right? So when you see those commandments, you can't say, I'll try to do this. I'm pretty good here. No, 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 no. I can't do this. I can't do this. It should drive you like a schoolmaster. You're learning that. You know the schoolmaster? It's a really um, interesting picture of, of, the, of the schoolmaster. Back in the day, they had the classrooms, and you had the teacher in the front, and the teacher would often be writing things on the board or, you know, reading from the, reading from the lesson plan to the kids. You had another person in the classroom, and that was kind of like the schoolmaster. What would that person do? If you started nodding off, you might get a smack on the back of the head or a poke at least, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're causing trouble. We could use one of those here, right, to come around. Wait, wait, God. <laughs> Pay attention. Stop sleeping. We need a schoolmaster. But that's the use of the law in some ways. It shows us that we can't keep it, and it points us to Christ who does keep it for us. Amen? Praise God. So that's number one. Uh, Romans 3.20 tells us this. For the, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Why? Because you can't do it perfectly. That's why Christ came. If you could do it, Jesus wouldn't have to come. He came because we can't do that. It won't be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. I see my sin now. It shows me my sin. That's the primary purpose of the law. That's the first use of the law, to bring us to an end of ourselves and drive us to Jesus Christ. So look to Moses. Look back to Moses. See how you've broken that law, and then look forward to Jesus Christ, the one who kept it. Even Malachi is alluding to that here as he tells us to look back. Number two, what's the second use of that law of Moses as we look back? It restrains evil. Again, this is not a lesson for, I mean, most of you know this, you should. Um, How does it restrain evil? Especially through the threats. It's not just the standard. You might not want to keep the standard of God, but you don't want to get in trouble either. So you're, you know, you're not going to necessarily go, it kind of restrains evil to, to, to that degree because it threatens punishment, threatens penalties in that way, doesn't it? The laws, the statutes, the principles applied. 
So even in our day, something as simple as traffic laws, something as simple as a speed limit is connected to the commandments. Do you understand that? Do you understand that's connected to the commandments? So you have a speed limit there. Why? That's going to tell you, it's going to deter you from excessive speeding in a particular area that might be dangerous. You're not going to drive by a school going 60 miles an hour. Some of you might want to do that, but you see the speed limit, 15 miles an hour. You're going to slow down, most of you, right? That's a deterrent. That, that, that shows. Why? Because there might be consequences. If you, if you break that law, especially in a construction zone or school zone, you're going to get double fines. They really want to deter you from that. But ultimately, why is that? Not just because of the punishment, because it's the preservation of life. It's the sixth commandment. That's what it is. It goes back to this. All, all the laws go back to the command. That's, that's why he says that this is to restrain, to keep you from doing what you would naturally do. It's going to say, nope, because of the threat of punishment. But there's always the positive connection to as of why, to, to, to maintain, to, to preserve the image of God. So we have laws against stealing and laws for private property. All those laws, that, that what commandment's that? That's the eighth commandment, right? You're not gonna, we, we have laws, we used to have laws against adultery and laws against divorce. Why? To deter you from that, absolutely, but to preserve the family and God's ordination of the family. You understand? It's a great thing. That's the second use of the law. But as a society drifts from God, if we, as we drift away from God, what happens to the laws? Well, first of all, you see lesser penalties. When you break the law, we're just going to get a warning this time, you know. And that's so. So we we lessen the, the penalties in that regard. The laws aren't enforced, and and people are able to kind of. There's really no deterrent anymore when you start drifting from God, especially with the second use of the law. And that's what's happening to people of Israel as well. You know, they're getting farther away from God. I could bring this sacrifice to God. He's okay. Doesn't I know what his law says and I need to bring the first and the best, but maybe I'll do I know I shouldn't be getting divorced, but you know what? My wife is real trouble for me, so and I and I'm actually in love with that person. So, you know, God you see that? You see that? And then eventually, and you need to you need to understand this because this is where we find ourselves right now. It's not just the lessening of severity of the penalties or that they're not enforced, they're not serving as a deterrent but eventually there's an inversion of the law. Isaiah 5.20 tells us that. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, bitter for sweet, sweet for bitter. Guess what? We're there right now in our society because we've seen the second aspect. The laws aren't being enforced very much or very selectively or very arbitrary in, in certain ways, not serving too much as a deterrent but we're seeing inversions of the law. And one way that that's manifested is that laws that are passed are in direct violation of God's law. So think about Obergefell. Think about the same-sex marriage. That's a law, that's exact contrary to God's law regarding marriage. Think about abortion laws. That goes directly against the sixth commandment. You see? And they're calling that good. And if you would speak out on that, they're coming up with laws that constitute hate speech if you speak out against that. This, this is where we find ourselves. And this is what it means to drift away from God. And when you're at this point that you know that you're in a bad place and you're far, far, far away from the Lord and you need the gospel, he's telling them, look back to the law of Moses. Come to an end of yourself. Start living for him. The third use of a law is simply a guide. It's a lamp unto our feet. 
It's a desire to know, love, and obey. Hearts of gratefulness. Now I want to, as a Christian, you should want to serve the Lord. You should want to live and abide by the law. Not that it's, you know, I'm going to keep these commandments because now he's going to love me more or less. No, he loves you. But because he loves you, you want to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Don't you? Don't you? Don't you want to be that, that person who stands before the Lord with integrity and with honesty? Who's faithful to your spouse and to your family? who loves God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind, who honors him even if it costs him. Amen. That's it. That's the working out of all of this. So he says, remember the law, because they had forgotten it. They disregarded it. And they needed it primarily to show their need for Christ. And then finally he says, he goes on, and he mentions Elijah. He says, behold, I will send my I will send you, Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. He's going to turn the father's hearts back to the sons and the son's heart to the, to the fathers. Do you know what that is, beloved? That is the promise of the gospel. That is the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ coming to us. He says, behold. And that means be amazed at, marvel at, look at this, check this out. You need to hear this when he says, behold. I will send you, Elijah. Now, Elijah along with Moses, was considered kind of, they were like the two great prophets of the Old Testament. And I know you smarties are going to say, aha, but John the Baptist was the greatest prophet, and you're right. But, you know, I'm not strictly speaking, but speaking in terms of the Old Testament, these two. You, know, you kind of think it's Isaiah, you know, where's Isaiah? It's really Elijah. He had such a prominent role in, in, the, in God's um, un redemptive history. Uh, we see him with, with at Mount Carmel. We see him with Ahaz. Even at the Mount of Transfiguration, who was there? It was Moses and Elijah with Jesus. Even, even the uh, Jewish people today at Passover, they keep an empty seat for who? Elijah, because they're waiting for him to come to announce Messiah. But that's what this promise is, is filled by John the Baptist in the New Testament. This is how we know. He's the one who comes in the spirit of Elijah to announce the coming of the King and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Luke chapter 1, we're told in verse 16 and 17, speaking, now see, see if this sounds familiar. See if you see the connection between this and Malachi. It says, and I, he will turn many of the children of Israel to, the love, to love their God and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And then in Matthew 17, we're told this. Jesus says, he answered, Elijah does come, because they were asking about Elijah coming uh, first. And he says, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. See, that's the, the, the precise fulfill, fulfillment of our passage this morning. Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. The disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So it's John coming in the power of Elijah to announce the coming of Christ, to make the way. And that's exactly what John did, who was regenerated from the womb. Remember when he leapt in the womb, we're told that he was regenerated from the womb, who went out and began to preach repentance and turning to the Lord. Who, When he saw Jesus, what did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What did he say about himself? I'm not even worthy to untie the, his, his sandals. 
So, so he, he knew his role and his place. This is the, the awesome day of the Lord. That is the day when, when hearts are turned back to, to the fathers. It's not necessarily about reconciling families um, per se. It might have some of that. But the idea behind this is that it looks back to the faithful fathers, to the ones who, who truly looked forward to that day of Christ, who truly believed. Just like we look back to the cross, these faithful fathers were looking forward to Jesus. So Abraham, and we know this even from Hebrews 11, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Samuel, David, Hezekiah, Josiah, all look forward to the coming of Messiah, the one who John was announcing. John was just making that way. He said, I'm going to decrease while Christ increased. I'm nothing. He's everything. You need to believe and trust in him. That's the coming Messiah. That's why we have John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Why did he come? Matthew 1.21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He came to seek and to save that which is lost, to, to rescue, to deliver, to forgive those who are on their way to hell, who actually deserve hell, what we talked about, to keep them and to love them for all eternity. That's why Christ came. That's who he is. And everyone who calls upon his name, this is the good news, right? Because the bad news is bad. And that's something we miss in this day and age. Afraid to tell people about the bad news that the good news doesn't mean too much. If you know how bad the bad news is, if you know how sinful and wretched you are, if you know that you deserve the wrath and curse of God, no matter how nice you might be, no matter how hard you may try, but when you realize how sinful you are, what a wretch you are, right? what you really deserve, and the realities of eternal punishment in hell, when you realize that and how much Christ loved you to die for you, to take upon himself the sins, to conquer Sin, Satan, death, and hell on your behalf. Then you know what it means to be saved. Then you know what it means to be loved. Then you know what it means to be forgiven of your sins and trespasses. Then you know what it means to look forward to eternal life and have that hope in Jesus Christ. Do you have that hope this morning in Christ? Do you know what it means to be delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Son? To have your sins forgiven? The consequences that you've escaped because Christ took upon himself your sins. If you know that, then you will serve him and you will love him. If you do not, well, then know that today's a day of salvation. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. He transforms lives. He transformed all of us. We were walking in darkness. Now we're living in the light of Christ. And so for those of us who do trust in him, and those, even in Malachi's day, who trusted in him, begin to worship him with all their heart. And you need to worship him with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. You need to give him all of you. Even here, right now, as you sing out to him, as you pray, as you engage with the sermon, as you engage in the service. Are you giving yourself to him? Or is your mind a million miles away? Are you looking at your clock? Are you ready to go? The game is probably postponed because it's raining today, so oh well. Don't do that. You give him all of you now all the time. You show deep concern to please him, to honor him. Is that your goal? Is that, do you think about that when you live day to day, when you make your decisions every day, the things that you're going to do? Are you thinking about honoring him? How does this honor him? Am I obeying him? 
in every sphere of my life? Is he Lord over every aspect of my life? Or do I have my thing over here? And God, I'll have 98% of you in my life, but this, you know, this couple percent here, no, no, that's, that's just for me. No, he demands all of us, and we are to give all of ourselves to him. In our relationships, in our marriages, there's that devotion that you're willing to give yourself to him, to your spouse, to your family, to walk in a manner worthy of your calling with integrity. That's what this calls us to because we've been saved from the wrath of God. We've been saved from hell. Do you give your time, your talent, your resources, your energy to the work of the Lord? Do you give without expecting anything in return? Do you pray for those who hate you and despise you? Is it all about getting even? Are you quick to, quick to come back and, and to always be fair? Listen, Christianity life is not fair, is it? You should know that by now. It's not fair the way the world sees fairness. We're going to endure many injustices for the cause of Christ. You need to understand that. You need to be willing to, to live with that and not become bitter in that. But know that you're walking the way just the way Christ walked in his life. That's what, that's what it's about. And everything that you do, I don't care if it's at your work, it's your job, or you do it as, as unto the Lord. Not so your boss says, oh, what a great worker you are. Not so people say, oh, how wonderful. No, because I'm doing this unto the Lord, whether they say I'm good or not. Right? If they treat me unfair or not, I'm doing it as unto the Lord. And as he gives you opportunity, are you telling others about the truth of Christ? I know there's different gifts and talents. I know there are those, even like Flex, he could talk to anybody, anytime, anywhere. Amen, praise God. God made him like that, and that's good. We have evangelists in that way. Some of us aren't as bold in that, in that regard. But as he gives you opportunity, do you take the opportunity to tell others about Christ, or do you just keep your mouth shut? Because you don't want to offend. You don't want them to think you're weird or strange or whatever. You don't want them to go away from you. What do you do? See, we need to speak it because it's that serious. It means that much. The consequences and the stakes are way too high. The truth. This is what our sin deserves. But this is why Christ came to deal with what our sin deserves.